What is health really all about? Why should we avoid quick and obvious explanations to mental health challenges? Why do names matter more than diagnoses? Can the faithful taking of medication be a spiritual practice? And how might a perceived absence of God be part of faithful living? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Lemming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Professor John Swinton. John is Chair in Divinity and Religious Studies at the University of Aberdeen and founded the University's Centre for Spirituality, Health and Disability. His latest book published this year is Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of Christians with Mental Health Challenges. So our question today is, how can a good theology of mental health help us to understand ourselves, one another and God? Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. John Swinton, welcome to Talking Theology. Good to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. John, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey to your current role in Aberdeen and what that role now involves. Yeah, well, I've had a kind of interesting journey over the years. I began life, well, professional life, as a uh, mental health nurse. So I nursed for 16 years and then I wandered into theology in the early 90s and I really liked it. So I decided to stay there. So I've actually been at Aberdeen now for um, 21 years. This is my 22nd year. So I'm one of the old school. But the nice thing about Aberdeen is that they've allowed me over the time I've been here to develop my own particular interests, which basically is reflecting on my career as a nurse and as a chaplain and as a minister. Really. So I always think about the, my nursing as a place of formation where I was formed to to see things and see people in, in a particular way. And then my theological life is my place of vocation where I begin to ask, well, what does that mean in the grand scheme of the kingdom of God? So that's kind of where I come from. And that also explains why I have certain interests, I suppose. Bringing that experience as a mental health nurse, John, how did you find initially entering the theological world? And were questions around disability, dementia and mental health, questions that you've explored a lot over those years. Were there questions that were only beginning to be explored or did you find you were asking questions which perhaps people hadn't been asking before? I think it's a combination of both really. I mean, practical theology back then was very much applied theology. And so I remember my first practical theology course was or lecture was something like don't throw stones at coffins because it upsets relatives. In other words, when you're at the gravesite, make sure you take the stones out of the earth and throw it in. Uh, and that was a kind of way that we were learning practical theology. But strangely enough, I knew even in that first class that that, that was the place I wanted to be. So I discovered my vocation in that really strange space. But no, I think in relation to these kinds of issues, some people, people like Stephen Patterson had begun to do some early work and people were thinking about these things. But when I came in, I guess basically I brought a different set of questions because I had a different theological journey. I didn't come through the university system when I was young. I came through the healthcare system and trained as a healthcare professional. And I always spent my life with people who saw the world differently. So when you're with people with enduring mental health challenges or people with profound intellectual disabilities, you begin to see that there's more than one way to look at the world. 
And then if you bring these questions into a theological context, then you have different angles, different questions, different perspectives, which means you see different things. It's not that you become unorthodox. It's just you ask different questions of the tradition. And when you ask these different questions, then you get different answers and see things differently. So that's how I came into it. I stood on the shoulders of many giants, but I brought my own set of questions and perspectives. Within that wide range of thinking you've done over the years, John, we're thinking today particularly about the area of mental health. I wonder if we can think about the problems, first of all, or about the unhelpful ways in which the question of mental health has been tackled from the perspective of faith. Because mental health, it seems to me, can be associated with unhelpful or even harmful theological approaches. And I just wonder, can you just name some of the, for you, problematic ways of thinking about mental health that you've come across? And perhaps some of the ways in which scripture or theological approaches have been unhelpfully marshaled. In other words, tell us about the problem, if you wouldn't mind. It's good to begin with the problem. And there are plenty, unfortunately. But one of the big issues, I think, big problems, and I see this time and time again when I have conversations with people who are living with mental health challenges, is that Christians in particular tended or tend to go for uh, explanations that are A, too quick and too obvious. And so you have depression, for example, and people say, well, it must be a sin. It must be something that you've done. So pull your socks up. Or if you hear voices, people say, well, it must be the demonic. Now, that's because... Uh, people have a very limited vocabulary when it comes to uh, mental health issues. And for the most part, uh, very often our spiritual vocabulary is negative. I like to think about it as casual theodicy. And if casual racism is just throwing out racism, not really thinking about it and not noticing it, casual theodicy, that is trying to explain why they're suffering and evil, we do the same thing. And it causes damage to people because how, how would you or I feel if somebody said to you, the reason that you're feeling the way you are is because you're possessed by another spirit. If they said that to you, it would be a sign of psychosis. But apparently you can say it to somebody else and it's a spiritual uh, interpretation or explanation. And so when you begin to think about the impact of these explanations and begin to think about how negative and dangerous that kind of language can be, then you can see that spirituality and religion can be highly problematic, even though it can also be highly beneficial. So let's think about how it might be highly beneficial and and go on that journey together, if you wouldn't mind, John. What are for you the key anthropological insights? That is the insights about how we are made as human beings. What are the key insights from scripture and theology about how we are and how we are made that undergird your approach to thinking about mental health and mental health challenges? Well, I think that my beginning point for theological anthropology is always the assumption that we're creatures that we are people who are created by God and therefore we're not independent, we're by definition interdependent. And we're also defined not by our own particular conditions or experiences, but by our relationship with God. You know, Paul talks a lot about being in Christ. The idea that you find who you are in Christ becomes absolutely crucial if you experience dementia, for example, where you can no longer remember certain things and culturally it looks like you lose your identity, but actually that way of thinking about being in Christ opened us a whole new range of possibilities. So that sense of relationality that I think is extremely important. And that relationality spreads into the way in which we understand health. And so very often culturally we think about health as the absence of, of illness. And so in terms of mental health, we might think of health as the, the absence of symptoms or the absence of sadness or something like that. Which, if you're a mental health professional, makes perfect sense because that's the way in which that aspect of healing is brought. People deal with 
problem in, in particular, and you have a, a, an understanding of health as moving towards or moving away from particular symptoms and, and negative experiences, that's fine. But theologically and from a biblical perspective, health is more than that. Health is closer to the concept of shalom. So the Bible doesn't really have a, a, a word for the biomedical understanding that we will sometimes work at. But the idea of shalom is, is helpful because it's to do with being in right relationship with God, self and others, and creation. So it's to do with righteousness, holiness, right relationship with God, which means that to be healthy is not to be free from symptoms or sadness or brokenness, but actually to be in relationship with God, even in the midst of the difficulties that you're encountering. And that's profoundly important because if you have an enduring condition such as schizophrenia, the way that we may frame it in a standard medical context is you're always ill. You may be a little bit less ill, but you're always going to be ill. But if you take that biblical model of shalom, then it's possible to have experiences which are difficult, but to be healthy, as long as you can work together with others to keep your relationship with God. Even in the midst of sadness and brokenness, you can find health. And at the end of your life, you can find health in the same way that through that slightly revised model of health. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's an alternative model because nobody wants to experience suffering and pain, but it is a complementary model that opens up space for people with mental health challenges to be thought of and to think of themselves in creative and constructive ways rather than simply as being always ill. In the light of that, John, and that sense that we can be held in that shalom place of relationship with God, Some of those gospel narratives about Jesus healing those with an evil spirit can be very difficult to read for those of us with mental health challenges or those of us who live with people with mental health challenges. And so if we're not going to take a casual theodicy approach to those passages, how are we going to use those sorts of passages well? There's two things I would say to that. The first thing is, if you use the DSM criterion for mental health uh, and place it against the the demonic, as it's related to us in the Gospels, they're not the same thing. Can you just explain DSM for us, John? DSM is the criterion. It's the diagnostic manual which psychiatrists and psychologists use to define what a a mental health challenge is. So it's a list of symptoms, a list of experiences that people go through, and then that determines what diagnosis they have and then determines what treatment they have. If you place that, for example, against... You know, very often we say something like the Gerasene demoniac has schizophrenia. First of all, it's quite dangerous to read back into second century Mediterranean culture, contemporary medical diagnosis, because we hadn't invented psychiatry then. So you want to be careful even to think about doing that. But then we say, that, well, this person has this particular condition. But actually, if you place the experiences of a Gerasene demoniac against the criterion for something like schizophrenia, they're not the same thing. You could argue that perhaps multiple personalities sits there somewhere. But very often we don't even bother to to do that kind of analysis. Most of the demonic possession that we see in the New Testament is physical. It manifests itself in in people's bodies in that sense. So I think it's clear that there is some truth about what demonic activity, Jesus spoke a lot about it, but that's not to say that that should be or can be necessarily equated with the experiences of people with mental health challenges. And I also always wonder, why is it that we, and this, this is a Christian we in this case, are so quick to ascribe the demonic to some of the most vulnerable people in our society, and we're very slow to ascribe the demonic 
to politicians, to political powers, to the place where Paul says the real demonic activity goes on. So it's almost reason for not making quick explanations that we project our own fears onto this poor individual and then we read that back into scripture. The second thing I would say in relation to the healing miracles in general is that if we read the healing miracles through a biomedical lens, then we come to perhaps the wrong conclusions. Bearing in mind that biomedicine hadn't, again, hadn't been invented then, so there's something else going on. When you read the Gospels and think about it, the healing miracles are statements about who Jesus was. So the theological statements, they're not medical statements. I mean, it's wonderful that people can be freed from painful illnesses and from stigmatizing conditions, but it's always about Jesus. It's always about a statement about Jesus. Who can forgive sins? Jesus can forgive sins. Jesus is the Son of God. And so you really have to look at the miracles, I think, in the light of their Christological focus in order that you can get past your own biomedical worldview and actually see what's going on in there. You mentioned about the risk of quick explanations, John, and DSM, which is this scale to understand symptoms. And I know you've written about the risks, theologically speaking, of adopting a diagnosis approach to thinking about mental health. That is giving every kind of mental health challenge a name. What are the risks of this approach and and what might be the theological kind of corrective or alternative here, John? Well, diagnoses are intended for mental health professionals to help them to use their healing talents well and to be able to, to understand certain aspects of a person's unusual experiences. So they're not meant for you and me unless we are clinicians. They don't really tell us very much about an individual because we're not trained in that way. But the problem with mental health diagnosis is there's, there's sticky labels. And so as soon as you have one, it sticks to you. And then not only that, it then ascribes to itself a series of metaphors and particular meanings within society. So when you have influenza, you don't become the flu. But when you have schizophrenia, people talk to you about being a schizophrenic. And what, what on earth is that? In other words, it becomes ontological. It becomes part of who you are in a way that another condition didn't. And then placed on top of that, the way that culture stigmatizes that. The word stigma comes from the Greek slave trade, where you'd buy a slave, put a mark on them, and then the slave would no longer be a person, no longer have a name. It would simply be a mark, which marks them out as chattels for the slave master. And stigma does that. And diagnosis, certain powerful diagnoses can do that when they're in the hands of the wrong people, like you and me probably, and the way that it's portrayed in the media and, and the way that people are subsumed by the diagnosis. To be able to get beyond that and recognise that diagnosis tells us some things about an experience, but sometimes it can stop us from seeing other things. Because most people, most of the time, don't live in a professional context. Most of the people that people encounter are not professionals. They're just people like you and me. And most of the stories that they tell are the same stories that you and I would want to tell. You want to be accepted, you want to be valued, you want to be part of something. But if all we can see is the clinical diagnosis and the things that we imagine and project onto that, then all these other narratives just get lost. You've written about the primary task of the church is to love people and give them back their names. Is that in response to this stigma that comes through a diagnosis being pinned on you? Actually, the church's call is to know Leslie and John and Mary. Exactly. But it's a theological point, though, because, you know, if you think about Genesis, a narrative of creation. So amongst other things, God obviously creates the world. 
But then he gives Adam responsibility to name the world. And so before that, the rabbit wasn't a rabbit, but he says it's a rabbit. Before that, the tiger wasn't a tiger, but then it's a tiger. In other words, the primal responsibility of human beings is to name things properly. And once we name them, then that has impact on how we respond to them. Because the way that you name and describe something determines what you think you see, and what you think you see determines how you respond to what you think you see. So there's something about faithfully naming people that is profoundly important in terms of being faithful to that ongoing call to name the world properly and faithfully. Part of that name is obviously the uniqueness of the individual within that. And you've written, mental health problems are unique experiences that occur in the lives of irreplaceable individuals who have their own unique stories, histories, dreams and desires. People who are deeply loved by God and whom God desires God's church to love without boundaries. In your recent book, Finding Jesus in the Storm, you've recounted and given voice to the experiences of different people living with mental uh, health challenges. And why was that an important approach for you to take? And, and what did it help you explore writing about this? Well, the approach that I took in that book was kind of a, like a phenomenological approach. Now, what I mean by that is simply that phenomenology says that in order to understand an experience or something that somebody's going through, you need to put to one side your normal assumptions about what you think is going on and try to get the lived experience in and of itself. Which, I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to do that, which is why there's an interpretative dimension to that kind of work. So it's a matter of putting to one side your cultural expectations of what you think someone with bipolar disorder should be doing and should experience it, and literally listening to what's really going on. Because when you begin to hear people's experiences, when you begin to hear people talk about the meaning of elation and the meaning of voices, then you begin to see that there are a number of powerful and highly significant and healing narratives that are oftentimes not heard because of the power of the, the bigger stories in that sense. And so by spending time with people who live through these very complicated experiences and trying as best as I can to articulate what the gifts that they've given to me in their stories, my hope has been to open up space for and confidence for religious communities to rethink what certain things about what they think is going on, but also to rethink how to understand these experiences theologically and to respond pastorally in a way that's appropriate and not simply clinical. Building on that, John, you referred earlier to the possibility that an understanding of shalom compared to health as an absence of illness and that sense of shalom being a relationship with God in the midst of sadness and brokenness. I wonder, and I know you've written elsewhere about health as the presence of God rather than the absence of symptoms, which I think is largely the, the similar point. I wonder in the light of that and building on the experiences of the people you were talking to, can you say more about where we can find the presence of God in the pit as we or those whom we love are living with ongoing mental health challenges? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things that's worth thinking about, things that came out of this particular study or set of conversations. The first one is to do with medication. Sometimes we have an uneasy, Christians in particular, have an uneasy relationship with medication, and we suggest that it's okay to take medication if you've got a headache, but it's not so good if it's a psychological thing. And one of the things that I discovered very quickly was that people have an ambiguous relationship with medication, but 
for the most part, a positive one, certainly the people I spoke to. And so I think of one gentleman I talked to, his diagnosis was double depression, which is a relatively new diagnosis, which basically means that when he's well, from his perspective, he is kind of in a state where many of us would assume ourselves to be clinically depressed. And so his lows are lower than most, and his normal is lower than the, the majority of people. And so he talks about his spirituality within that context. And he says, it's like there's three dimensions to my spirituality. He says, at level one, I can use my normal spiritual practices to help me to deal with my depression. So I can use scripture. I can use the Psalms of Lament. He talks about I can pray. He says, then when I start to go down the second level where he begins to find it difficult to concentrate. So because he can't concentrate, he finds it difficult to draw on scripture or to draw on tradition or to pray and to have that intense time. But he can hold on to his faith then. But then at the third level, he says that there's nothing he can do. He says, it's just absolute darkness. And there's nothing I can do to get out of that. My spirituality, he says, means very little to me because I can't lock on to God in the way. Because the presence of God, he says, is something that's central to our understanding of what faith life is. And it suddenly it disappears. And he says, the only thing that can help me there is drugs. And even by that, he means medication. He didn't mean by that that drugs somehow create a false spirituality. He means that drugs or medication helps him to get to a level where he can begin to pick up on his spirituality. And I've spoken to people about that. I've spoken to theologians about that before. And they get cross sometimes because it's almost like he's cheating. We all have to work really hard for our spirituality and he takes drugs. And I try to explain to him that if you are in an end-of-life context and you're overwhelmed by pain, the one thing that pain does is it as Elaine Scarry puts it, it expands your body to the size of the universe or shrinks it down to the size of the pain. Whatever it is, you can think of nothing else but that pain. You know, if you stub your toe, you can think of nothing else but that pain. But if you get a big pain like cancer or something like that, then it overwhelms you. Separates you from God, separates you from yourself and separates you from your neighbor. In that context, giving pain medication reconnects you. In other words, the giving of pain medication is a spiritual practice. It's something that enables you to get to a stage where you can reconnect to all these levels. It's precisely the same within a mental health context. When you're in that depth of depression, it's a deep psychological pain where you're separated from yourself, separated from God and from others. So the giving of medication, or should I say the faithful giving of medication in that context sensitively is a way of helping somebody to get together and to move beyond that it's not the end of the story but it's a beginning point and so for other people that's not the case some people are just not very keen on medication for a number of different reasons but i think for many people it's a good way of beginning to that and if you think about it in that spiritual framework then it makes perfect sense in that sense and you don't have that dichotomy between the physical and the, and the mental where you, you give medication for physical things but not for mental things but the second thing that came out in a very interesting way, in relation specifically to depression, was that Christians are not really taught well about the absence of God. So when you look back at scripture and tradition, God frequently seems to disappear. Isaiah talks about God hiding and not being able to see him. And then ultimately on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, where are you? And nothing comes back. You can see it all through the Psalms of Lament, that same thing. The point there is that sometimes when people get deeply depressed 
one of the things that exacerbates their situation is that they feel that their sense of abandonment means that they're outside of the tradition, that they've done something wrong, that this is not a normal spiritual experience. But actually that sense of abandonment is in their tradition. It's not a normal spiritual experience, but it's not abnormal either. It's something that very well documented from the beginning of Scripture right through. There are times when God just seems not to be there. And so that partly that destigmatizes that experience, but also it means that when you're in that situation, you're not apart from the people of God. You may not feel like you're actually experiencing something that religious people have experienced, always experience. Now, the question is, do we teach people about the absence of God? Or are we so terrified of the absence of God that we don't teach people that that's part of the tradition? And then when you hit that rock, you and everybody else around them, you don't know what to do with it. So there's something important about regaining that spirituality of darkness in that way, but in a constructive, creative way that makes that experience part of your spiritual experiences rather than something that's radically different. And you write powerfully, I know, about Psalm 88 as that classic psalm which ends with darkness. And darkness has become my closest friend. And that gives us the voice, its place within the Psalter is validation of the reality of that experience, isn't it? It does. And I mean, the thing about Psalm 88 is it's spoken to God. It's a prayer. It's a psalm in that sense. So it's an articulation of a genuine feeling. But at the same time, at least those of us who are not articulating at that moment know that it's a form of prayer. It's an unusual prayer. It's a form of prayer. You mentioned earlier about Shalom being living with others in relationship with God. And that's a theme that you've occurred to again and again, that this Christian gift is about a life in community. And yet I'm struck that one of the the narratives that we can often hear around disability and ill health, including for those living with mental health challenges, is the fear of being a burden. I wonder where our resources to say as Christians, dependence is a gift of God rather than a problem. Well, I've got five kids and I, I'm determined to be a burden on each one of them because they've been a burden on me for, for more than enough time. <laughs> so... <laughs> But putting that to one side, that's for another therapy session. I think one of the things that Jesus is very clear about is to love your neighbor, obviously, and to share your burdens. Jesus says that the essence of the law and the prophets is to love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. And that's all part of the same process. You can't do one without the other. And so loving yourself is profoundly important. So you may feel that you're a burden, and very often we do. But at the same time, Jesus' command is to love one another, including ourselves. And so, yeah, we might need help to not feel that we're a burden. We need other people to make sure that that's not communicated to us. But I think that simple, well, not so simple, that, that statement from Jesus means that the idea of you or I being a burden on other people is simply a misunderstanding and a misuse of the term burden, which we've got to share these things anyway. So I, th- I think... You can theologically shift your understanding of what value is and what it means to be a valuable person. And what it means to lose value is not simply to become ill and to be dependent on others because we're already dependent on others. It just becomes a bit sharper. John, we're recording this interview during a pandemic at a time when this country has just begun a second national lockdown. I know that's true in Scotland as well in a slightly different degree. The impact of the environment, therefore, we find ourselves in has put mental health at the forefront of the national conversation. I wonder if you might just comment about what we are learning 
theologically and pastorally about mental health at this time and how we might live that out in local Christian contexts where we find ourselves? Well, it's difficult to know what we're learning because I think the consequences of the pandemic are still to come. So what we're actually learning about mental health is probably something that we're going to have to do in the future. What we have learned, I think, is that we're interdependent. That the idea that we were unique individuals or discrete individuals who could just go on with our lives and not really impinge on other people, it just hasn't worked. We're clearly, as a culture, as a society, we're interdependent. And we've also noticed that it's very easy for people to get isolated and lonely. I mean, for the past few years, a number of mental health organisations have been pointing out that loneliness is the big epidemic, if, if, if I just use a topical word. And nobody says very much. Some of us took it seriously, some of us didn't say What the pandemic has done is it's reinforced that and made us all feel anxious and lonely. That combined with the toxic politics that oftentimes accompanies the economic squeeze that we were under just now means that all of us are really becoming quite insular and anxious. I spend my whole life in front of a Zoom screen these days. I haven't seen a real person for four months, <laughs> or it feels like that. Certainly not in a professional capacity. I do see other people in real life. I do have a family. But, uh, <laughs> I do have a life. I'm starting to sound pathetic now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I found that because I'm isolated from my colleagues at work and because I'm isolated from the normal routines, my world starts to get smaller. I start to get anxious about things. Then I look at the news, I get anxious about that. And so that sense of cultural anxiety, I think, is increasing. That sense of loneliness, that reluctance, perhaps, to go looking for people who are vulnerable because we're all tied up in ourselves at the moment, is actually probably something that we all have to think about and to, to deal with. So I think the pandemic has reminded us of some positive things in terms of interconnectivity. But at the same time, it's caused some very serious rifts in how you deal with reconnection, particularly in the midst of lockdown. John, we often end these interviews by reflecting on what this topic means to you. But I think we've heard so much of your experience and clearly the impact of the interviews that they've had on you, John. But I want to pick up on one comment that you write about at the end of, as I say, this latest book, when you reflect on the answer that you give to your kids when they ask you what type of superpower you like. And you said, I always tell them I'd like to have the power to be gentle and kind at all times. Why is that a prayer? Why is that a hope? Um, why might it make all the difference? I think partly because in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, I am gentle. And there's something very beautiful about that, because Jesus, who is God, who, God, who is the creator of the universe, is gentle. Part of who God is, is just gentle. And I think when you look around at the fragility of society and the people that, I mean, particularly people that I really have a passion for, people with dementia, people with profound intellectual disabilities, the only way that you can really be with people who have these life experiences is to be gentle, just to slow down, take time for those things that society thinks are trivial and be kind. And I think if we did our politics gently and kindly, if we did our church politics gently and kindly, then you'd have a very different world. That maybe sounds a bit naive, but even if you did your family relationships gently or your church relationships gently, or your university relationship gently and kindly, things will be very, very different. And so I think just gentleness and kindness is a, is a good aspiration, even though I don't always manage to do it, which is why my kids laugh when I say that to them. But everybody needs an aspiration. Everybody needs a vision. Everybody needs 
a way of being that they can live into. And I think it's realistic. And I think we should all do it. You've given us a great encouragement to do just that. John Swinton, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. No, thank you for the invitation. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>